I'm Peter Holliday, and this is The Land Behind, a podcast which explores the relationship between photography, perception, and place. It's a pleasure to welcome my guest today, the British ecological anthropologist Tim Ingold. With a distinguished career spanning over five decades, Tim is the author of 14 books and numerous articles. After graduating from the University of Cambridge in 1970, Tim worked with Sami reindeer communities in northeast Finland. Following a year teaching at the University of Helsinki, in 1974, Tim became a lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Manchester. In 1999, Tim moved to the University of Aberdeen to assume the newly established chair of social anthropology. Tim's thought was a central point of reference in my master's thesis, and it continues to have a significant effect on the way I think about landscape perception and place. He may not be a photographer, but I consider it especially relevant to share with my audience the cross-disciplinary voices that have positively influenced my own awareness as a photographer. During my discussion with Tim, we consider ecologies of perception and human-animal relationships. We break down the false dichotomy between culture and nature and consider the natural environment as the meeting place between earth and sky. A key and recurring question in my work as a photographer is indeed the question of what it means to be human. I have previously compared my own photographic practice to the pursuit of the universal horizon against which the inexhaustible possibilities of being human stand upright within the open expanse of being. Yet despite the anthropological dimension to my pictures, I am by no means an anthropologist. I am, at least from the perspective of this podcast, a photographer, and an extremely curious one at that. Yet, as I continue to explore the mystery of being human, there are of course many moments when I find myself startled and taken aback by the naked wonder of my own existence, when I am not quite sure who or what I am as if I was looking at the world for the first time. With this sense of openness, I'm delighted to welcome to the conversation Professor Tim Ingold. Tim Ingold, thank you very much for speaking to me this afternoon. It's a pleasure. In your 2007 lecture, Anthropology is Not Ethnography, you described the project of anthropology as a generous comparative, but nevertheless critical understanding of human being and knowing in the one world we all inhabit. In your book, Being Alive, published in 2011, you advocate your method as a movement of opening, not of closure. In your 2018 book, titled Anthropology, Why It Matters, you describe your discipline as philosophy with the people in. However, in the introduction to your most recent book, Imagining for Real, a collection of essays published in 2021, you suggest that you have now reached a point where you doubt how anthropological your method really is. So I'd therefore like to, well, I'd like you to describe for our audience who you are, and I'm particularly curious to know how your upbringing shaped your interest in anthropology and perhaps how it shaped your in, your worldview in general. Okay, thank you very much. So let, let, let me start with the the upbringing question. I, I'm, I'm a child of an academic middle-class British family. Uh, my mother was a geologist, but then gave up her academic career to become a mother, as was normal in those days. My father was um, a, a botanist. His specialism was mycology, study of 
fungi. And he uh, was a very distinguished mycologist and became a professor at the, at the University of London. Uh, and so I grew up in a, in a household where um, a sort of scientific household where, 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 where scientific matters were, were regularly being talked about, where my father's books and papers were lying about, where I could actually see him engaging in his everyday work because he's studying fungi. He would often go for walks in the countryside and bring stuff back and examine it under the microscope on our dining room table. So you could, you could actually see in a rather homely way this kind of scientific work going on. And, and so that's, that's the environment I was brought up in. And it was sort of assumed from the start, without me or anybody else questioning it, questioning it, that, that I would become a scientist as well. I, I mean, I did my, my university entry exams, which are called A-level exams. I was only 16 at the time, far too young to make any kind of life decision, uh, and did well in maths and physics and chemistry. So I then went up to Cambridge, uh, took a year in between, and it was assumed that I'd just be going, going to Cambridge to, to study natural sciences, and that was it. And it, it was really only during that, that, that first year at Cambridge that I, I was kind of old enough and maybe mature enough to even begin to think seriously about what, what I really wanted to be or to do and what I wanted to study. And I, and I came to the conclusion after that first year of study that I didn't want to carry on with science. I wasn't really anti-science, although at the time it was, the, it was the height of the Vietnam War and science was being accused of being complicit with the military-industrial complex. Um, there was a lot of politics around it. Um, I wasn't very much influenced by that, but I just felt that, that science was this huge machine in which all you could be was a little cog. Uh, you, could, you could only investigate some tiny specialist area there wasn't much room for, there wasn't really room to breathe. It felt very claustrophobic. And I wanted to find a discipline where there was really, really room to breathe, where, where a discipline that was still at its formative stage, still being established so that one could help establish it. And I was looking for two things. One was that I was troubled by what seemed to me to, to be an enormous gulf between the natural sciences and the humanities. Uh, that these, these sides were simply not talking to one another. And even as a first year student, I was struck by this. And the other thing was that the gulf between the experience of life as it's actually lived and felt by people and theories of what life could be as theorized by, by academics. So what I wanted to do is to find a subject that would um, bridge both of those gaps between the sciences and the humanities and between theories of what life could be like and the experience of what life actually is like. And I, saw and I found anthropology, and I still think of anthropology as lying on the crossroads. It's a place where these two oppositions intersect, the opposition between theory and lived experience and between sciences and the humanities. Right in the middle of all that is what I thought anthropology was or should be, and that's why I went into anthropology, and it's still, it's still why I do it. But, um, but at the same time, I have the feeling that 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 anthropology has been, to some extent, torn apart, um, in in it, rather than bridging 
the, the bridging, those oppositions that I helped to bridge, is actually being torn apart by them as, as well. My dad, the mycologist, never really understood what it was about anthropology, but I tried to explain to him that there's a, a, a rather remarkable similarity between anthropology and mycology. The thing, the thing about fungi is that they just don't behave as organisms ought to behave. I mean, a, 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 the, the way an organism is supposed to behave is that it's this blob, the blob, it has a skin around it, and it relates to its surroundings. And if you're an ecologist, you study the relationship between the organism and its environment. The organism is in here, the environment is out there, and you look at the relations between them. The fungi aren't like that, because they just have these enormous mycelial networks that spread all over the place. And, and they're all fibrous, and, and they don't have any proper boundaries, and they do all sorts of crazy things, which is why my dad found them so interesting. And, and I was trying to explain to him that that's exactly how it is in anthropology, that we try to think of people in that way too, not as bounded entities with a self inside and an environment outside, and we study the relationship between the self and society or self and the environment, but because people themselves are like mycelia, fungal mycelia. They're, they're, they're bundles of lines that are going every which way. They don't have any clear boundaries. They live in a world of, of, of what I call the meshwork. It's just full of, 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 of these tangles everywhere. And, and so I think that, that I actually absorbed something from my dad's mycology, which led me to think about people in a very fungal way. Uh, so there, there was that influence that 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 um, that came through, and I think is is still there. But when it comes to the definition of the definition of, of anthropology, it, my mind keeps changing. But the, but the one I have at the moment, the the short definition which you had, is is philosophy with the people in, with implicit criticism that professional philosophers tend to leave people out. The long definition is a generous, comparative, open-ended, sorry, start again, a generous, open-ended, comparative, and yet critical inquiry into the conditions and possibilities of life in the one world we all inhabit. So it has these four components. It's generous, generous, which means we listen to what people say rather than imposing our own ideas. It's open-ended, which means it's not looking for final solutions but thinking about the way things are going. It's comparative because it assumes that no particular way of doing things is the only possible way. There are always other ways, and you always want to ask why this way rather than that. And it's critical because we can't be content with the way the world is at the moment. We're, we're, we're in the middle of a crisis, and we, have to find, uh, uh, and we have to address it, and therefore anthropology has to be, has to be critical. Um, the one world we inhabit, that, that's important too, because I, I, I want to insist that I mean, anthropologists and, and others are always talking about many worlds. So we're all these different worlds, and they're all bumping up against one another. But I think it's really important to recognize that we actually all share one world. And I don't mean the one world of British Airways or, or, um, or corporate finance. I mean one world of, of inexhaustible difference. And, and I mean, one way of thinking about it is just as a conversation, just a huge conversation in which people are talking to one another and stuff is going on. And like a conversation, it's open-ended, it's unbounded, it's carrying on all the time. 
that's life. But it's out of that conversation, conversation that that uh, that knowledge grows. So that that and and so I think of anthropology as as a philosophical discipline in that in that the questions we're asking are philosophical questions. The questions like, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live, to know, to remember, to find your way around in an environment, to relate to your surroundings, to organize yourself into societies, to live and to die? All these are these are all big philosophical questions, which philosophers have addressed for, for thousands of years. But but the thing about anthropology is that we address those questions. Um, in the world, that is not not through engaging with a, a textual canon, you know, from Aristotle to Nietzsche, but by but by talking to people, by doing things with people, so that the people themselves become conversation partners, become interlocutors, and we can learn um, from their own experience. So I've been saying about anthropology that it's not a way of making studies of people, but of studying with people. Um, where where the people become our teachers, we learn from. We don't have to agree with them, but 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 we learn from them. And that's where where you said at the end that that yes, in my last book, I I began to doubt: well, Am I an anthropologist after all? <clears throat> and a lot of that has to do with the relation between anthropology and ethnography, which is something I've I've been worrying about a lot. Um, <clears throat> but in my mind, anyway, anthropology and ethnography are quite separate endeavors because ethnography is a concern to understand and describe the life of some particular people at some place in some time but anthropology is about addressing these general questions about how to live drawing on the work on on what we can learn from other people so that it has a different objective from ethnography and i where i disagree with many of my colleagues is that i want to keep the anthropological objective separate from an ethnographic one. I want it to be an inquiry into the general question which concerns us all about how to live. Um, not about how this people live or those people live, but how to live. Um, so maybe that's where that, that gives you a rough idea of where I'm coming from and where I am. So before I move on to the next question, I just want to respond to a couple of themes in that answer. And it seems like your idea of the meshwork or mm. your concept of lines isn't, and especially with reference to your father, who was a mycologist, it reminds me a little bit of the image of the Deleuzian rhizome. Yeah. Um, this principle that you can... St- doesn't really matter where you start. In principle, mm. you can end up anywhere, depending on the questions that you ask and the answers you might find along along that path. Yeah, no, it, it is a Deleuzian rhizome. It's the same thing. Um, I only just think that that actually the rhizome botanically is not such a good example. That I think the mycelium works better than a rhizome. <clears throat> it's an analogy. And the other thing is that I. I didn't get it from Deleuze. I, I mean, that that I like like most people. I find most of Deleuze inspiring but incomprehensible, and and I was only able to understand what he was going on about once I'd figured all these things out for myself. 
Then I could go to Deleuze and say, oh, that's what he's saying. Oh, but I worked that out for myself anyway. I don't need Deleuze. So I, I wouldn't have gone to Deleuze to help um, find the concepts or the ideas I need. I figure them out for myself and then go to Deleuze and find, oh, he thought that too. But that's always how it is with me and philosophers, because unless I've worked something out for myself, I can't understand what philosophers are writing about. Yeah, you also, you, in advance of our conversation, you also said, um, you implied some something similar when we spoke about Maurice Merleau-Ponty as well. Mm, so, mm. Yeah, it's generally so. You, you wouldn't go with, to a, a major philosophical work with an open mind waiting for that philosopher to explain things to you. You don't understand a word of what they're saying. The, 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 own, the only way you can yeah. understand is to work it out for yourself and then then maybe they help take you a bit further than you, you could have done by so, yourself. So just to confirm, if we're going to round up a definition of anthropology, even... That's probably not possible, but to round to summarize your point is anthropology in a sense is philosophy with the context, with the lived context. Yeah, with 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 life. Um but I would have reservations, we'll probably come to come to that later, I think, in later questions, about the idea of context. This is a little bit problematic, but I, I think we'll come to that. So I'll okay. leave that one off for now. And um what does your C V look like so far? What does it look like? Well, I know I've, I've given up trying to. One of the great advantages of retirement is I, I'm not having to apply for jobs or <laughs> research grants anymore, so I don't much need a CV. So I've, I've given up trying to keep it uh, keep it up to date. It, it gets. Uh, but uh, you started. You started at the. You studied at the University of Cambridge. Yes, yes. I mean, if you go back to the beginning, yeah. I <clears throat> I was an undergraduate at Cambridge. From 1966 to 1970, I was four years because first I did the first year of natural sciences, and then they let me go back and do the first year again in anthropology and archaeology. So then I did, and then I did two years more of anthropology. So so I was an undergraduate for four years rather than three because of that change. Then I did my um, PhD again officially in Cambridge, but I was there for as little as possible. I, I spent a sometime in the University of Bergen, uh, because I wanted to study with a very famous anthropologist, Frederick Barth, who is a Norwegian anthropologist who is based there. Uh, and then I went up to do field work in Lapland in over 16 months in 1971 to 72. Then I spent um, a year <clears throat> in Helsinki as a, with, a, with a Finnish Ministry of Education scholarship in 1973 to four, and then I got my first proper job <coughs> at um, at the University of Manchester in 1974. Stayed there until uh, until 1999, so I was there for 25 years. And in 1999, I moved up to Aberdeen to establish a new anthropology program. And, and in 2018, I retired. Yeah, yeah. So you you can enjoy now. I can. <laughs> So your your research, as we move on to the next question, your research your research can be seen as an effort to return the tradition of anthropology to the natural setting of practical everyday experience, and your approach therefore could be described, at least from my perspective, as an attempt to create a language to overcome the ostensible but stubborn dualism of culture and nature, or in other words, 
um, this perceived dichotomy between the human world and the natural world. In your book, The Perception of the Environment, uh, which I was one of the references in my thesis, um, and you published this book in the year 2000. In this book, you write, and I quote, thinking, perceiving, remembering and learning have to be studied within the ecological context of people's interrelations with their environments. So that goes back to your previous answer. Um, with this in mind, I'm interested to learn how important this particular attitude of thinking, perceiving, remembering and learning have has been to your own methods of research? Um, that's, a, that's a big question. I mean, when I, um, when I finished writing up my PhD and I got my first job in Manchester and I was given a course to teach, it was called Environment and Technology, but it was effectively a course in, in ecological anthropology, which then was, was virtually non-existent. I mean, it was a really a new area of anthropology. Nobody... Uh, it was a bit more advanced in North America than Britain, but in Britain there was hardly any work being done in that area. Um, but but I've been doing this field work in Lapland, and people thought, well, if a guy's been out there reindeer herding and that sort of stuff, um, that sounds very ecological. So, so I was given this course in ecological anthropology to teach, so I had to become an ecological anthropologist, and that, that's what happened, and I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and to begin with, I, I started from the premise that every human being is, in effect, two different things, or, or every human being participates simultaneously in two different systems. First of all, they participate as an organism in a system of ecological relations. So obviously a human being is, is an animal, a living organism. Uh, we have to, uh, to eat, uh, metabolize, and all these things that organisms have to do. So, so as a living organism, every human being has to be part of an, of an ecosystem, an ecological system of relations. But on top of that, every human being is a person immersed in relations with other people in what we call the social system. So, so I thought the problem that we have to address here is how to understand the interplay between these two different systems, social systems and ecological systems. Because, never mind other animals, but at least with humans, we have to deal with these two systems and the way they, they relate to one another. And, and then, it was back in the, in the 1980s, um, there was a, a sudden revival of, of Marxist theory and, uh, and Marxist ideas about uh, the relations between relations and forces of production were, were sort of linked onto this opposition between social systems and ecological systems. And, and, and I started trying to play with uh, what, whether a Marxian framework would somehow, somehow deal with that. Um, and I carried on with that until, until the mid to late 80s, when I kind of hit a crisis, um, because the more I thought about it and the more I taught it, the more obvious it became that you simply couldn't divide up human beings in this kind of way. The human being is one thing, not two. And we're not, we're not sort of... Um, these kind of double beings with one foot in society and another foot in 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 the in the ecological world. Um, that that we have to think of the human being as as one thing, not as a divided entity. 
Uh, and and it suddenly dawned on me, and it, it actually happened quite suddenly, a sort of epiphany in, in, in 1988, I remember it well. And I suddenly thought, for God's sake, your person and or the person and the organism, they're one and the same. And we have to understand both in terms of um, the dynamics of re the relations in which they're, they're um, embedded. Uh, and that basically set the agenda for the next, decade or a bit more than a decade which was because I, I realized that in order to do that in order to reconcile the, the the social being of human with the ecological being of the human I would need a new biology as well as a new kind of anthropology uh, and um, I worked on that all the way through the 1990s and and um, the you mentioned that book, The Perception of the Environment, and that's a collection of, of 23 essays, all of which were written, or all but one or two, were written during that decade, of the, starting from the late end of the 1980s through the 1990s, trying to figure out a way of completely rethinking uh, the person and the organism in such a way that both could be understand, understood as emerging and generated within unfolding, dynamically unfolding fields of relationship. And it was a big challenge. And that, that's what I that's what I tried to do in in that book. Um, and during that time, and during the 1990s, there was there was a kind of revolution, not a revolution, but anyway, a, I think a paradigm change that went on in ecological anthropology, and I, my work was part of that. And, 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 it, and the paradigm change was getting rid of, uh, of the nature-culture binary, uh, of, of showing how that in some ways is a, is a peculiar construct, construct of post-enlightenment thinking mm -hmm. uh, and, and finding another way. Another way, we, we needed another different language, different set of methods uh, to think through how to do it um, how to do it differently. Um, so that's uh, that's where the perception of the environment came from, really. Um, it was originally meant to be three separate books. And then my publisher very wisely said, no, you should put them all together into one book. But it became a very, very big book. Very long book. But um, So does Marx still have a place in your in your thought? Yeah, he does. I'm, I'm, the the early Marx in particular. Um, there's, they're, they're almost two Marxes. There's the Marx of, uh, of, uh, of the early early work, pre-capitalist economic formations, all that stuff. And then there's the late Marx of, of capital. And and the early Marx was a, was a, uh, was not really worrying so much about all these big economic and political questions that preoccupied him later on. He was a, he was a, full, a sort of existential philosopher. And and. And um, I still go back. There, there are many things you find in in those early works that are that are truly <clears throat> inspirational. And um, indeed, I, I think that I got the idea of dwelling. I mean, I'm supposed to have got it from Heidegger, but in some ways, it actually came from Marx, and it came mm -hmm. from me trying to think what 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 was it that Marx really meant by production mm -hmm. or to produce, where he says that what people do is to produce their own life and then he had this idea of species life as life forgetting life it was a wonderfully vitalist sort of philosophy 
that he was developing and and that yeah that's still that's still a touchstone for me but how does um the theory of historical materialism fit into your view of nature <clears throat> well i it, it doesn't really in the sense that that I, I was teaching it whilst i was still going through this when i as long as i was still trying to distinguish between social and ecological systems then I, I was trying to understand the interplay of these two systems in a way that drew on historical materialism. Uh, uh, I can't explain very easily how it, how it all worked, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but, the, but, but there was an idea that you'd have an ecological system and a social system, and, and that over time they would, uh, th- there would be mounting contradictions between them that would then reach a breaking point, there'd be a crisis, and then you have a new system, and, and that's how you could understand history. Yeah, and there were other anthropologists working around that time who were coming up with similar ideas, but they didn't really go anywhere. And, and once I decided that I, I couldn't. I mean, the, for, for Marx, the, the the um, the gap between the human and the material, between the social and the material, is is kind of fundamental. And and mm-hmm. and so, I went, once I, once I got rid of that, I, I had I had to go beyond Marx. Really. Well, I'm thinking that the, the one of the common criticisms of a theory like historical materialism and theories like it is that it, there's an inclination within it to reduce the natural world to a set of inert... Yeah. Um, an inert being and an object for manipulation in mm. the service mm. of humankind. Mm. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, no, that's true enough. And, and um, where is it somewhere in Capital that Marx says that um, that the earth is is man's primary instrument of labor? Uh, and basically, it's the pla- and he says it's the platform for all his operations. So he's thinking of he's thinking of the earth as a, as, as a stage, a platform, or uh, but like an oil platform, you know, something like you have this platform and you work on it and you mm. drill into it and you extract stuff from it and and um, uh, so so that I, that 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 wasn't okay. But but at that time, this was back in when I was thinking about these things in in the nineteen nineties um, was and and nineteen eighties as well. It wasn't just Marx; it was also Engels. And Engels was a really ecological thinker too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he published some texts which were really, in terms of of thinking ecologically about the sorts of effects that humans can have on their environment and how those how those effects can strike back uh, in unpredictable ways on human society. Engels was way ahead of his time, yeah, and there's yeah. some really re- remarkable stuff that I, I. There is some quite ecological thought in Marx, I believe, as well. In his defence, yeah, yeah, yes, there is, there is. If we're going to and, be fair, to, to, to be fair, <laughs> yeah. but 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 um, the the difficulty was or, or the, the the stumbling block uh, was always the the division between the social and the material, mm-hmm. uh, which was so fundamental that you couldn't really get over it, and that's exactly what I wanted to break down. Yeah, you've done a lot of um, research in human-animal relationships. And that was, it was the subject of your doctoral thesis, I believe, as well. Um, 
The ecological psychologist James J. Gibson has defined the word environment as, and I quote, the surroundings of those organisms that perceive and behave, that is to say, animals. And in the introduction of Imagining for Real, your latest uh, collection of essays, you yourself state the following, and I quote, to study anthropologically means allowing ourselves to be taught by the world itself and all the beings, human and non-human, that inhabit it. Um, I find this sentiment particularly interesting, seeing as the anthropological discipline is traditionally perceived as the rigorous study of human-orientated behaviour within a culturally situated environment. And so, as I said, during your early research, you spent time with the lives of indigenous economies, um, particularly in the far northeast of Finland, which you spoke about earlier. And you've considered the ways in which the human experience of the environment is nourished through an attitude of trust towards the non-human flora and fauna of a given landscape. Um, in this context, the landscape of the Sami people in northeast Finland. And in your 1974 article titled On Reindeer and Men, you describe how Sami reindeer herders are so intimately involved in the actions of the reindeer that they see their own humanity within the migratory decisions of, of them. And so much so that the reindeers themselves have somewhat of a say in the regional politics and policies of the Sami reindeer herders. And uh, having myself joined Sami reindeer herders along the fells of the Swedish, Finnish, Norwegian frontier, I have a vivid memory of what this particular human animal interplay looks like in practice. Um, the reason I was in, uh, in this area, of course, is since 2020, I have been returning to Lapland to ask about an, a man named Mikael Utsi, who emigrated to the Cairngorms in the mid 20th century with his reindeer. Animals which are now very much a feature of the Scottish landscape as a consequence. And so my question for you is, from your own perspective, in what way do plants and animals invite us as human beings to attend to the events of our surrounding life world in ways that are culturally meaningful? Um, in other words, how can plants and animals affirm our being on the earth? Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because... Um this paper you mentioned was published in 1974 called On, On Reindeer and Men. It was, was one of the first, or just about the first thing I ever published. Um, and I was just trying to get myself into, into print for the very first time. And the, and the argument of the paper was that, um, that reindeer, uh, as I had learned from the, the Sami people I'd worked with, are, are intelligent, sentient beings with memories um, and, and experiences of having dealt with uh, with humans, uh, sometimes good experience, sometimes bad experiences, uh, that when they migrate, when they move around, they do so with the good reasons of their own, uh, that they have a social organization of their own as well. And, and therefore, that one has to understand reindeer not as just objects or material or stuff, but, but as a... As a uh, almost like a, another community, it's an, another society that the human society has to has to deal with. And when when I published this article, um, it was completely ridiculed. I mean, people say this is this is ridiculous. I mean, reindeer are just reindeer; they're just animals. We can have ideas about them, um, and and maybe it's interesting to to tell us about what the Sami think about reindeer. But to suppose that reindeer are actually um, st uh, strategically 
working out what to do, where to go, how to how to find people, how to avoid people, and that this affects hurting operations was was considered to be completely ridiculous. Now the, the tables are completely turned, and and everybody is talking about multi-species ethnography and how important it is to uh, recognize that animals are beings in their own right, that they take their own decisions, they have their own politics, and 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 interact with with uh, with human societies and polities in in these very complicated ways. So I. I sometimes feel a bit like a grumpy old man in that uh, uh, there were, people are coming all of me. We had a grand, brand new approach of multi-species ethnography. I say, well, I was doing that in the 1970s and everybody just laughed at it. So, um, but anyway, that, that that's how it is. But um, but I did get interested in, in the question of, of human-animal relations because I've been working with, with reindeer herders. And, and to start off with, I was still... Until I had that epiphany I mentioned earlier, I was still pretty much of the view that, well, humans are humans or animals are animals. And, and, and although uh, your different people have different ideas about what animals are, still, um, still there is something fundamentally unique about, about humans. Um, it's not something that I would really accept anymore. So I, I did really change my position when it comes to animals pretty fundamentally, I think, somewhere between the 1980s and the, and the 1990s. Um, and um, one, of the, one of the things I encountered more recently was, was advocates of, of the, what's called Goethean science, the people who, who follow the scientific principles that were laid down by, by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe in the uh, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, and, and Goethe basically recommended that uh, to scientists that they should practice a kind of participant observation. He wanted to study a plant. You had to spend lots of time with that plant, be there, watch it, spend your days there, and, until you become so intimate with the plant that you begin to feel like a plant yourself, and you begin to feel and you can imagine the world from the plant's point of view. And and that that kind of perspectivism is something that's been been creeping up on anthropology, but only only the last ten years or so. It sometimes goes under the name of, of perspectivism, which means that um, that we have to understand that plants and animals, any other beings, have their own points of view, if you like, their own, and and uh, and that's something that we can get to know. But <laughs> one thing that ha happened to me um, when I did field work, my, my doctoral field work, I mean, so long ago, uh, it happens to everybody else who's worked with Sami people, is that after a bit of time, they, they can talk about nothing else than reindeer. And they're, they're, you have reindeer on the brain. And you talk to Sami people and they talk about nothing else. So if you do field work with Sami people, after a while, you talk about nothing else as well. So... So and people were saying, you know, I thought you're an anthropologist. I thought you're supposed to be studying people, and all you talk about is reindeer. I said, yes, well, that, that's all very well, but 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 I've been studying. I've been trying to. I've been studying the the Sami people I work with study reindeer because they herd them, and you have to study reindeer if you're going to herd them successfully. As an anthropologist, I joined with the Sami, so I end up studying reindeer too. So I learned a lot about reindeer, but I'm learning about about the reindeer from them, from the Sami. So I'm learning from the Sami about reindeer. I'm not sure that I'm really learning from the reindeer themselves. 
and that's the that's the tricky thing. Is to, uh, where where do you where do you move from learning from other people about animals or plants to learning actually from the animals or the plants themselves? And there there is, I think, a point where that happens, but it's not very clear. Uh, and and often when people talk about when anthropologists today talk about multi-species ethnography or how they've been working with animals and plants. It turns out that actually they've just been working with other people. Uh, they've been talking to these other people about the animals and the plants. They've not really been spending much time with the animals or the plants um, themselves. So there's a little bit of, um, I think there's a little bit of double speak involved in all of that. But in, in principle, I would like to see anthropological study embedded in a wider kind of Goethean science, in which we we are we are participant observer, observers in the world, and it makes no difference. We might be participating and observing with other humans, but we might just as well be participating and observing with animals and plants mm -hmm. as well. And what, what can this human reindeer relationship say or tell us about the landscape in which these practices occur? Well, for example, if, if, if you're a herdsman, uh, you, you have to, when you, you're, you're following um, reindeer through the, through the forest or in the tundra, and, and to do that, and to, to keep on top of things, um, you have to be able to anticipate pretty much at every moment what the, what the herd is going to do, what the animals are going to do. You have to, you have to be one step ahead, otherwise you lose, the, lose control. And... and so anybody who has herded reindeer knows very well that their movements are largely in response to the wind, uh, not not just to the prevailing wind, but to all the little microcurrents of the wind. So in a in in a in a mountainous landscape, or a landscape that's cut by all ravines and hills, um, you get very complicated uh, uh, currents of air. Because the, the prevailing wind is sort of finding its way through and around the topography. And, and that's what the reindeer are picking up. So that, that therefore, in order to, to herd the reindeer successfully, you have to begin to see that landscape in the way they do, mm -hmm. which is not as yeah, yeah. Um, a series of topological surfaces, but as a complex of air currents. So that's the thing. I mean, if, if you're working with animals, you, 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 you have to tune in to their own particular sensibilities so that you know roughly what they're going to do. And in order to do that, you have to learn to see the environment in the way they do, which often means drawing on senses uh, that maybe you don't, wouldn't otherwise um, mm -hmm. or that other people uh, might not pay much attention to. If you're, if you're a hiker in Lapland, you've got your rucksack on your back and you're just thumping through, or a skier, mm -hmm. um, you don't pay attention to any of these things. Well, actually, I would push back on that because if, if I'm sure you have you have a lot of outdoor experience and if you've ever looked for a place to pitch a tent that oh, is that is an act of that can often be an act of reading the wind it depends on what the weather's like mm -hmm. um so I think maybe when you're hiking you are a bit more attuned and that's that's true yes, yes as, as a, as a uh, in, if I, if but you I, might be attuned you might be attuned to different things so yeah if you say, if I'm, I'm hiking, i got to pitch my tent, then you're thinking about, I want my tent to stand up. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, so a, there's a different context, but mm -hmm. it's, 
yeah, it's like reading the weather. You'll you'll the more you spend in the, in the outdoors, out in the open, which we'll we can get onto in the next question a little bit more. But um, the more you spend, the more time you spend in the mountains, for example, the the more attuned, uh, the more you get you get to that landscape. Um, mm. It's an intu- it's intu- it becomes intuitional after a stage. But yeah, yeah, yeah um, I've I've some yeah in that sense perhaps we're. If you if you think about the reindeer and human beings exposed in the same landscape, perhaps in some ways we're not actually that different at all. One maybe not. One maybe being not. just uh, has the power of language, and the other one communicates in a in a different yeah. way. Not in many ways. In many ways, they're the same, and, and that's why I've been thinking about replacing the idea of landscape with the idea of a weather world, a weather world with the which is sort of a, a world of earth and sky, which which puts the emphasis on on what's going on in the air and what's going on under the soil more than on the particular conformations of the land surface. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit the same if you're a mariner and you're out at sea. Um, you're not really concerned with the surface of the ocean. What really matters is the currents and tides underneath and what's going on, the wind and the weather and the stars and everything else up in the sky. And you're, you're, you're in the middle between the, earth, the, the ocean and the sky. You're not... Yeah, yeah. You're not going over a surface but it's about how you read your environment and learning to read as its own practice is a, is a process as well you know it of takes course. time it's a temporal process so yeah. it's, it's that it's, it's all about intuition and the development of intuition and the more time you expose in these environments the the more you learn how to read yeah. them and, and I mean this is particularly the case for me when I'm hiking in Lapland when I'm hiking in the Cairngorms you're often you don't have phone signal most of the time so you can't check the weather forecast and I was actually in the Cairngorms in, on Sunday and on Sunday night we stayed at Hutchison's Memorial Hut um, underneath Loch Etchikan and we in the morning on Monday morning we went up to Loch Etchikan from uh, the Memorial Hut at 9am we came back to grab our bags and walked out to Lynn of D um, later on mm. in the morning but as mm. we went up as we ascended 200 metres there was uh, it, it began to snow and there was still mm. ice up up in the quarry on, on the on the loch on the lochin mm. mm. and then as we came down um, within 20 minutes within well, within less than 20 minutes the sun was uh, out and by mm. the time we got back to Lin- the Lynn of D car park the, it was almost like a summer's day so yeah. it just shows you that you can't depend on, on these um, you can't always depend especially in a mountainous landscape, you can't always depend on these, uh, on the forecast at all. And nor, nor, and nor can you access <laughs> the forecast. So that kind of, just yeah. like the early mar- mariners that you just spoke to, you have to learn how to how to read a landscape. How, um, to, read, how, to, how to read the weather too. And you yeah. also talk about, um, a, lot, a big theme in your work as well is, is, the, is the ongoing flux, the, the movement of an environment. Mm. Um, mm. And you talk about this in many different ways. But that that is that is what I very much. Well, that's one one thing that interests me about your work is that the environment. I see the environment in a similar way. It's yeah. it's never mm. twice the same, um, yeah. and it's mm. also cyclical. Um, but even then, it's it's it doesn't it doesn't it never repeats itself. Mm. Um, mm. So, mm. and yeah, I, I, when I think about my own practice as a photographer. It is out in the open against the wind and the rain with my feet on the ground and with my eyes on the horizon 
that I produce my pictures and um, image making for me is as much a, an exercise of embodiment as it is a declaration of being in the world mm. and living with the world. And my thesis was titled The Landscape as Oneself. And much of my continued research and thinking still considers how I might learn to see the landscapes from which I draw my pictures as an element of my own existence. And you've previously, and you raised this in, in your first answer, you've previously signified your reservations concerning representationalist post-enlightenment theories of knowledge that go over and beyond the immediate embodied experience of our lived surroundings. In emphasising the role our bodies play in the unfolding character of the perceptual landscape, you explain, um, and I quote you here, the eyes and ears should not be understood as separate keyboards for the registration of sensation. If I hear the flight of birds, it is because, following their course across the sky, the movement of my own body, of my eyes, of my hand, indeed of my entire posture, resonates with theirs. This beautifully poetic image of being in the world um, awakens my memory to two individuals who have had an enormous influence on your work. And those are the first one is the American ecological psychologist James J. Gibson, who emphasised vision as an entire ecology of perception. And the, the second thinker I would like to highlight is the French phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who is best known for inviting us to consider the pre-reflective role the immediate experience of our body plays in the disclosure of both self and world. And so with the thought of Gibson and Merleau-Ponty in mind, um, please tell us how we might learn to perceive the earth again as a dimension of our own being. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I came to Gibson's work before Merleau-Ponty. I, 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 it happened that... Um, um, the Ed Reed, who is a major Gibsonian thinker, um, read something of mine and wrote to me and said, "You must read Gibson." And I, eventually, I did, and uh, and and I, I found his work terrific, and it, it helped to resolve a problem in ecological anthropology that I was wrestling with, and it's, which is about where to place culture in the human environment equation. Um, and then later on, quite quite some years later on, I I came to Meloponti, and the thing is that the um, the Gibson, the great thing about Gibson is he, he has a sense of perception as as an active exploration of, of a world, of an environment. So the the perceiver is not simply receiving receiving sensations that are buffeting his senses and then constructing them into into representations into pictures of what the world out there might be like. The perceiver is actually moving around in the world, exploring it. And from that, picking up, as Gibson would say, picking up the information that specifies what is um, absolutely there, actually there. But there, I did find that there was a, a limitation in this, that although the perceiver is very active, moving around, exploratory, dynamic, the world that to be perceived is very curiously static with Gibson. It's as though it's just there. It's just there. It, it, it's like it's like you are roaming around in an attic, you know, and you're you're exploring everything in the attic. But the stuff in the attic, it's it's just there. It's not doing anything. And and what you pick up then are what Gibson called its invariant 
qualities. So that Gibson was still thinking of the environment very much like a physicist. He thought of it as this, this sort of solid existing things in themselves that are just there, they're really, really there, materially present. And I began to worry about that because I think, well, environments are not there. We were just talking about the weather. You know, and the weather is never the same from one moment to the next. And it's full of, of it's not full of, of objects and things. The wind is not an object you can touch or feel or find your way around. It, it's, a, it's a current of air that's continually blowing. And same goes for rain and all these other things, clouds. So, so when, a, when you put yourself into the kind of dynamic environment that we all know from everyday experience, you're just there and under the sky, there's the clouds, there are plants and animals, everything's moving, winds blowing and everything. You're not in that kind of environment full of objects that Gibson described. And that's where I needed Meloponti. That's I, at one stage, I encountered Meloponti and I thought, ah, he's going one step beyond Gibson. Because Gibson, Gibson imagines a world furnished with objects. And the problem for the perceiver is to see what are these objects, what are out there. Um, but but Meloponti says, no, there's be, be beneath that, there's a, a point at which we're perceiving how objects become objects, how there are things in the world to be perceived at all. So, so where Gibson would ask, sticking with visual perception, if it, Gibson would ask, um, do I see, oh, I can see this or that, I can see a chair, or a boulder, or a tree, Meloponti would say that the real thing is, I can see. Not what, do, what does it mean to see a tree or a boulder, but what does it actually mean to see? Because you can't see any of these things unless you can first see. And, and, and he began to, and, and, and he, he was able to teach me how, how vision is, uh, is something quite different from just the physicist's account of constructing something out of reflected rays of light, that vision is actually a way in which our own awareness is saturated by an atmosphere in which we are surrounded and, and immersed. Uh, and, um, and so whilst there's a lot in common between Gibson and Meloponti, one could find a, a great deal that, that is in common between the two, Meloponti's phenomenology gave me this, this extra the deeper level that I needed. Uh, I needed to move beyond how do we perceive an environment populated with objects to how do we perceive an environment in which these objects, along with ourselves, are continually coming into being. Uh, and, and that, in turn, had an effect on the way I thought about the Earth. Because when you read Gibson, he, think, he thinks of the Earth's surface Again, in a very mechanical, physical way, it's just a solid surface that everything else rests on. And it's there. Mm -hmm. Everything stands on it. So he'd say, you're in a world, and a world, he says, is, is, is furnished just like a room with furniture. There's a sofa here, a chair, a table. You're out in the world. There's a tree, a boulder, and so on. So, so the, the earth is just like a baseboard. It's, it's, it's the base on which everything stands. Mm -hmm. But... but, but I thought that's that's not good enough, because you know you've been out in the in 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 the forest and on the tundra in Lapland, and if somebody says, "You're where exactly is the Earth's surface?" It's not very easy to say very often. Um, the, the the where is it exactly? And uh, and uh, and you find that that there's not some level ground 
on which everything is based. But that actually what we call the ground mm -hmm. is a is a zone of interpenetration where the air mixes and mingles with the earth. Uh, because only because of that mixing and mingling that plants grow, for example. And 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 so everything we, we have to think of the ground not as a as a level surface on which everything is placed, but as this zone where air and earth come together in order to create a living world. In order to um, in order to be seen in a way. Yeah, in a yeah. way, yes. And and um so that where I felt that um I had to take one step beyond Gibson. Mm -hmm. I was still thinking in this very physical, mechanical way to to the phenomenology of Meloponti. But I didn't set out to be a phenomenologist. I didn't say, I want to do phenomenology. So I'm going to read Meloponti and then I'm going to interpret the world in this way. It was the other way around. I was I was thinking about these things and finding trying to find a, a language in which to express them. So in a way, in Gibson, you still saw something quite metaphysical. You still saw something that went over and beyond the lived experience of the landscape. Yeah. Um, I mean, Gibson is a, is a, is a, is a realist. And, and one of the things that I really liked about his work was the recognition that, um, how to put it, that, 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 at least at that time, uh, when I was engaged in this stuff, and particularly in the 1990s, uh, there was a lot of work, both uh, in terms of studies of landscape and studies of material culture. Um, and, and, and a lot of, most of that work took for granted that the material world consists of landscapes and artifacts. So that there'd, there'd be the land and objects on the land. And that's what the material world consists of. And, and therefore, there is no air in that view. You just have a, here's an object. Oh, here's, a, here's an object. That's a material object. The material is all inside there. Uh, outside that, it's just nothing. It's just this kind of ether or mind. So that uh, so that what, what happened was that the that, that that you had this 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 division between mind and matter basically. And 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 what I liked about Gibson was that he said no, there are surfaces in the world, but those surfaces are not between materiality and immateriality, but between the substance substances of the earth and the medium of air so it began to it, it 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 suggested a quite different approach to to the surfaces of things mm -hmm. which really was a was a help for me and he turns through and he links everything th together through this theory of affordances as well yeah yes yeah, yeah. And that was that was very essential but but the but the problem there is is it, he was always unclear and and uh, as to whether he really meant affordances in a realist or a relational way. Sometimes he says that that uh, a thing, of, of some, something in the environment, affords something for an animal because of what the animal is doing or trying to do. So the tree affords climbing for a squirrel, for example, because a squirrel is equipped to climb it. And, 
um, but it won't afford climbing for a being that has no ability to do that. So um, sometimes he says that the affordance exists as a property of the relationship between the animal and the thing, mm -hmm. the tree, the squirrel and the tree. But there are other times he says, no, 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 the tree affords what it does because of what it is, full stop. It doesn't make any difference whether there's an animal there or not. The tree affords climbing. No, never mind. And it affords climbing even if there's no squirrel or any or anything. It's still there as, a, mm -hmm. as an affordance. And, yeah. and and this 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 ambiguity um, is there all the way through in Gibson's work. And 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 people who have followed it up, there there are different schools of thought in ecological psychology, depending on whether people take the affordance to be fundamentally relational or whether they pick it to be fundamentally a property of the real world. And there's still these arguments going on. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to keep you all day, but there no. are there's two more questions that I would like to okay. address with you. So uh, let's move on to the relationship between dwelling and journeying, which I think you've mm. spoken a little bit about in being in your book, being alive, and also in lines. Uh, you've described something in your work called the named the dwelling perspective which you've defined as, and I quote, a perspective founded on the premise that the forms human build, humans build, whether in the imagination or on the ground. Okay, let me start again. The dwelling pe perspective, the dwelling perspective can be defined as, and I quote, a perspective founded on the premise that the forms humans build, whether in the imagination or on the ground, arise within the currents of their involved activity in the specific relational context of their practical engagement with their surroundings, end quote. Buildings, therefore, are not only shelters, but expressions of the, expressions of the ecologies in which they are situated. Um, as the anthropologist Hayden Lorimer has also commented, buildings provide an access towards the social histories of the landscapes within which they are, within which they are constructed. We could use mountain bothies across the Scottish Highlands, reindeer herding cabins in Lapland or hunting stations along the coast of Svalbard as examples. And so, in this sense, to dwell can also be akin to an act of cultural remembrance. Thus, in line with the 20th century German philosopher Martin Heidegger, the word dwelling does not represent a place of residence, but signifies an all-encompassing way of being with the earth. Yet... Not only do you reject the essential anthropocentrism at the core of Heidegger's definition of dwelling, in advance of our conversation, you also explain that you've gone off the word as it now represents, and I quote, a cosy by the, fire, by the fireside localism. And so as you explain in your 2011 book, Being Alive, to lay a path through the world is to dwell. As a photographer myself, I see my work as a particular expression of dwelling for my understanding of a place always involves staying with an environment for a prolonged period of time. By this I mean that only after journeying a landscape for days and even weeks, with little more than a tent strapped upon my back, do I feel that my images take on any kind of value or meaning. So, my question for you, Tim, is what can the paths we journey teach us about what it means to dwell? Mm -hmm. Um, oh, by the way, uh, Hayden Lorimer is, is a geographer, really, not an anthropologist. Oh. So a slight, slight correction there, but He's, um, he's written on anthropology, anthropological yeah, things. Yeah, he has. Yeah. I mean, he talks to anthropologists like me, yeah. but he's he's technically a geographer. But and, and his his wife is an anthropologist. So I would say he's partner is an anthropologist. So he 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 
he knows all about it, but technically a geographer. Um, I, you, you mentioned earlier that I kind of went off the concept of dwelling, which obviously came in came into my work from Heidegger, and 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 I perhaps made a mistake by talking about the dwelling perspective because it's one of these things that people people read read what I write and they pick this up and they say, oh, Ingold, the dwelling perspective, and it's sort of something they can cite, and and there's this contrast between the dwelling perspective and the building perspective, and it's quite easy for people to get their heads around that, and it just gets recycled all the time, and I. And I got to the point when I, I'm just sick and tired of hearing about this bloody dwelling perspective that, that, uh, that I wish I hadn't packaged it in such a neat form because it inevitably leads to oversimplification. And, and I suppose there were two reasons why I went off the idea of dwelling. I mean, the, the first was because of its unfortunate associations with Heidegger, which meant that whenever you used it, um, you couldn't use the word dwelling without people thinking of Heidegger and, and wheeling in all kinds of Heideggerian baggage that, that I didn't really want, and, and especially because a lot of it is quite unsavory anyway. Um, so, so I thought, well, one way of, of sort of shaking off the, the ghost of Heidegger uh, was to stop using the word dwelling, that people wouldn't think about it. And And the other thing is that that however, however much I tried to insist that in my understanding, dwelling meant moving about, meant journeying, meant following paths, meant place making, not being being inside the place, but but making a place. And you can only make places by going around, between, around, and among them. However much I insisted on that, readers still had fixed in their mind this idea that to dwell is to sit in an armchair. I mean, I, I can't do anything about that. It's it's part of the, the resonances of the language. So when you use a word like dwell, people think sedentism. They don't think movement. And and I didn't have any control over that. Uh, and, and I got fed up of explaining to people that I don't mean sedentism by, by dwelling. And people would sort of criticize my work by saying that, that it's all too localized. It doesn't... And, and simply because I'd used this word, so so that's one reason why I, I kind of went off the word, and I thought, okay, I'll I'll use the word inhabit instead, um, because that's neutral, and anyway, habit has all kinds of interesting connotations that I wanted to to explore. So that's um, that's one one thing. But but you're talking about about how. Um, about how the paths that we journey, what do they they teach us about what it means to dwell? And and I think, I think what they teach us is that, um, is that dwelling does involve movement, and um, and so we can look at the kinds of paths we make. Uh, in my book on lines, for example, I talk a little bit about the sand drawing of Australian Aboriginal people when they when they talk about the when they tell the stories of the ancestral beings in the green in the dream time and the ancestors moved around the landscape doing all kinds of things creating it as they went and and as they tell these stories they draw patterns they draw little diagrams in in the sand with their finger to illustrate what's going on and so the ancestor he came along here, he went along there, he, he waved around a bit, then then he, maybe he went into a waterhole, and so they, they then draw a spiral 
they go round and round and round a bit, and then they went on a bit, and then they went round and round about, and, and so so you see that the the, the the places emerge as as um, as moments where the flow, the 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 line of movement, sort turns around itself a bit. So it's it's a bit like you are looking at the at the surface of a flowing river, you know, and you see all sorts of eddies. And it's not the it's not as though the eddies are fixed in place, but it's just that the flow of the water, which um, every so often is turning in on itself, uh, and and creates a sort of vortex, mm-hmm. and moves on. Then then it, what 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 I learn about what paths teaches about what it means to gel to dwell is about how a place is like a vortex in a continuous movement. The life itself has to keep carrying on. You can't stop. <laughs> if you're a living being, you can't just say, I'm going to stop, because life, life goes on. That, that's the way it is. But it can sometimes curl up on itself and then, and then go on again. So um, what it means to dwell then is uh, is a function of of those paths of movement that we take and mm-hmm. um, to dwell in a place is to kind of go around and about it you, it's not to be contained by it and we know that from our own experience you live somewhere you're not you're not inside not like you're inside a box uh, it means that um, you go about in the place you know it uh, and you open and, your, and it, you open yourself up to new possibilities of course, yeah. yeah, and the place is never the same from one moment to the next. Just as you are never the same, so it, it, the place is like a, it's like a running river in that way. Well, I'm thinking about the this in the context of Mikel Utsi, who inspired uh-huh. my current project. Here's a, yeah. here's a Sami man who, as a young boy, was displaced from his uh, traditional homeland by the Swedish-Norwegian border treaty, mm. um, which limited the amount of reindeer that were allowed to pass over the border between Sweden and Norway after Norway got its independence in 1905. Mm. And so he was displaced from Karisuando or Garisavon, as it's called in the Northern Sami language. Mm. And after a series of events, quite interesting events, he ends up in the Scottish Highlands with his reindeer, where Mm. he lived for the last, or where he built a legacy for himself for the last three decades of his life. And so in a way that was, I think he died when he was 71. So in a sense, that was perhaps the largest project of his life, you know, um, mm. and it was far away from, from his homeland, from his, from, mm. well, from his landscape of origin. Mm. And so I sen- that's almost dwelling as a, as a mode of journeying is, is one of the themes in, in that project. And that was, that's the example that I would, yeah. that I would use to contextualize this theme okay. as well. That's a great story. Yeah. Mm. Um, I have one last question for you. Okay. And that is about your experience of the, something called the Conical Lodge. Mm. Um, throughout your writing, you are consistently bringing yourself into the text. Um, and this is, you know, it's very personal language that you adopt, very poetic at times. Um, so I'd like to ask you about an epiphany that you had inside a Conical Lodge uh, and you describe this experience in chapter 10 of Imagining for Real, um, named the Conical Lodge at the centre of the Earth-Sky world. 
And during this experience, not only was your idea of architecture transformed, but so too was your attitude towards how you perceive landscapes in general. Um, you described the Conical Lodge as a space where the union of earth and sky are brought together in the growth and experience of its inhabitants as a specific style of tent used by nomadic circumpolar peoples. The world of the Conical Lodge is not a landscape, but what you name an earth sky. Mm. Unlike the fixed immobile structure of the building whose footprint cannot be moved once, once its cornerstone has been set in place, the Conical Lodge is ambulatory and portable. Um, nonetheless, it has no windows from inside, one cannot see the visible horizon, but as its covering of caribou skin assumes the shape of the wind and amplifies the sound of the rain, it welcomes the environment which surrounds it. As you emphasise, it is a structure, and I quote, not on, but in the earth, and thus brings into the foreground, and I quote you again, the generative fluxes of a world that is forever worlding. You've, of course, written a lot on artistic practices and ways of doing architecture and how we might come to inhabit landscapes again. Um, so tell us about this experience of the Conical Lodge. Um, how has it transformed your perception towards the attitudes and aims of mainstream architectural practices? Well, what was struck me just in, in that was a lodge that had been reconstructed in the grounds of Tromsø Museum in North Norway. Um, so it was a slightly artificial setup, but but I went inside and and as you're sitting on the earth, and and the there's a smoke hole at the top, uh, and so you see the sky. It was daytime, so so the light pours in through the hole at the top, and you can feel the earth under your body, um, but no horizon, because as you said, the the the, the, the main part of the the lodge is completely wrapped in um, in in skins, and so. I suddenly realized that, that, that here we have a completely different relationship between the earth and the sky than the one one would have sort of in, in let's say, normal, ordinary Western architecture, say in a, in a, in a house or an apartment, um, where you would, you, would, you would think of the earth and the sky as separated by a horizon line, which is out there in the distance. So you have the earth down here, the sky up here, and the horizon line in between. And you'd see that by looking out of the window, which would be set in a vertical wall. And that, that's the, the, the ordinary common and garden Western understanding of it. And, and, and here in the lodge, it was completely the opposite. There's no horizon, um, but, but the, there was a relationship between the earth and the sky, but it was a relationship that was felt right there in the core of your being, inside at the center of the lodge, not something that was out there somewhere far away in the distance that you see uh, through the window. So it's a sort of inversion. And, and I began to think, well, what, what would happen to architecture if we thought about it not as um, a structure that is placed upon a level base in a world, but, but rather as a particular way of bringing together um, the earth and the sky. Uh, uh, and in, in which uh, we, we can forget about the ground as a base. I felt that the, 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 the conical lodge is not supported on the ground like a base. It, it, it sort of grows out of the ground, rather like a boil or a pimple on the skin. It, it, it sort of bubbles up 
in that kind of way, especially when you think about not just the structure of it with its poles and skins, but at the centre of the of, of the lodge is a, is a fire, there's a fireplace, and um, it, normally when it would be being inhabited, um, the fire would be burning, and 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 the, and and that actually the key part of the lodge would be the fire and the smoke that is then sort of spiralling up and exiting through the smoke hole. So that one should really start describing the conical lodge in life. One would start with the, with the hearth, the fire, the pattern of smoke, the relationship between the wood and the food that's coming in from the outside and is, 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 is fueling the fire or being cooked in the fire, and the smoke that then is going out in the top. So, so the, the lodge itself becomes a centre, uh, a nexus, in this circulation of both materials uh, and air, fuel and food, uh, uh, and so you, it, it, which which gives you a completely different way of, of thinking about architecture than a way that where you'd simply say, "Oh, here's the structure, the conical structure made out of poles and skins, and it's set upon the earth," uh, which is the way in which you know, you tend to think about it, particularly in in the museum uh, context. So that's what happened. And 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 it did make it did help me develop this idea that I was thinking about of, of, of rather than talking about the landscape all the time, of talking about the earth sky uh, as and 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 of the ground as a place where earth and sky, which is the ground of the ground not as as a surface that separates earth and sky, but the place where they actually come together and have a dialogue. And of course, there's something deeply ecological about this structure as well it's designed Absolutely. completely from organic materials mm -hmm. that are found themselves in the, in the landscape from the landscape mm -hmm. and you also speak about the relationship that its builders its original builders have to the con to this modern concept of design as well mm -hmm. um well well they, they perhaps they perhaps don't have the same the uh, attitude towards uh, contemporary attitudes of design, uh, design mm. practices. No, they wouldn't, and and um, I'm not even sure whether the concept of design would be would be applicable at all. I mean, the the but the the key thing is that the the conical lodge is not is not really a built structure. It's it's it's. Um, it's something that is continually building, I and mean, it's it, it it it's almost like a plant or an animal in that sense that it's 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 growing and developing, and of course, as you said, it moves from place to place, anyway. So that um, um, I don't know if you were to draw an analogy, it, it might be, you know, when wh whenever you lay the table for dinner, um, are you designing the table? I mean, it's it's a bit like that. That it's that sort of design that <laughs> that is simply part and parcel of of uh, of everyday life. Yeah, and in that sense, there's something quite uh, pragmatic about it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very pragmatic. Yeah, and uh, you also speak of um, Aristotle. You draw, on, you, draw, you draw upon Aristotle, which goes back to what we spoke about, what I touched on at the beginning of the conversation, how, you're, how you under, and how you understand your practice of philosophy with the people. And, you know, you keep on, you keep on going back to certain thinkers. You also speak of... Um, uh, Flusser as well in that mm -hmm. article. Um, mm -hmm. What, as we wrap this conversation up, what is it in 
I've got two small, short questions for you. What do you find in Aristotle's work and in, in the context of the Conical Lodge? And then what do you find in Flusser that helps you, that he- helped you understand this experience? I went back to Aristotle for the source of this, the so-called hylomorphic model. I mean, that, that, that in Aristotle, you find the classical statement of, of, of how um, when something is made, uh, it's a matter of putting together some um, formless material and some immaterial form. That you, you, you start with an idea in your mind. Or his, his, Aristotle, for example, is a, is a, is a sculpture, a sculpture. And, and, and so the sculptor has in mind, uh, making a sculpture of a, a figure, human figure, for example, the sculptor has in mind the, the formal figure. He has a raw block of stone. He works on the stone until the form resembles what he started with in his mind, so that the making of the sculpture is a, a bringing together of of form and material, and and um, I, I wanted to argue against that. It, it is a it's a model that's been hugely influential in the history of of Western thought, and actually, Aristotle's not so bad. He didn't put it in quite such a rigid way as that, but it has become more rigid as as time goes on. Um, Flusser. Is is quite eccentric and extraordinary, but but he has a he has a lovely bit um, where he's talking about uh, walls and and difference between solid stone walls and tent walls, and how the the tent is a kind of gathering of experience, uh, simply in the weave of its cloth. Uh, and and so in, in, instead of thinking of of the form as something that is given, it's something it's something that is much more um, much more emergent. Uh, and uh, I, I like I like this idea that um, of, of sort of comparing the comparing the um, the conical lodge, for example, or a tent to something like a bird's nest. You take a bird's nest. You know, the, the bird has built it out of out of all these bits of twigs and stuff. It's found, and the twigs were just lying around on the forest floor. They weren't part of the nest. They only became part of a nest in the process of building. Uh, and 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 so then, when the nest is complete, you can say, "Ah, each twig has a particular position in it. It is part of that structure." But but those twigs didn't start off as parts of bird's nest. They were just twigs lying around, and and and. And so you have this idea about how how actually the form is something that that, that emerges out of uh, out of this uh, constructive process, and that's partly what I got from Fisher. Yeah. So this is th- th- it's through Aristotle that you set yourself against, yeah. in a way, and then Flusser is is more of the inspiration for yeah provides right. provides the solution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that way around. So do you have a conical lodge in your garden then now? <laughs> 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 we have a small urban garden. There's not room for any any lodges in it. Uh, but, uh, it would be nice. Well, Tim Ingold, um, it's been a pleasure. Um, <laughs> there's there's a lot, certainly a lot of food for thought in this conversation. Uh, it's been a very well, quite a general overview of your work, but um, I've enjoyed it, and um, it's been very interesting to hear more about your insights in a in a much more personal setting than just a name on a page. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me, Tim. That's been fun. Okay. All right. 
Thank you very much and have a great day. If you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Tim and Gold, please consider clicking the follow button to stay notified of future episodes. Until next time, thanks again from me, Peter Holiday. <laughs>